They use unrestricted warfare to disintegrate and weaken those societies. So this explains why it is beneficial to the Chinese Communist Party to pump fentanyl into middle America. Today, I sit down with Cleo Pascal, a leading expert on China and the Indo-Pacific, and a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. They came very close to creating a country within a country in the middle of one of the most strategically important zones that the United States has in its Indo-Pacific defense architecture, which shows how active the Chinese political warfare is. Inside the Chinese regime's strategy, what we know they want to do is push the Americans out of the Indo-Pacific and push American functional operational capabilities back to Hawaii. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Leo Pascal, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. It's really good to see you, and great to be back on the show. So, Cleo, you wrote this really fascinating article for me:、uh, "China Winning Entropic Warfare in the Pacific Islands." And when I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, "This entropic warfare, this just doesn't apply to the Pacific Islands." But let's start there because this is your real area of expertise. And so, what is going on over there? So, first, it's not. Warfare in the tropics, so we have to sort of define the term in entropic, e n、uh, tropic, entropic. So、uh, a state of entropy is when things sort of start to、uh, fall apart, or fragment, become chaotic.、Um, and I th- I think personally, if you look at how the Chinese Communist Party conducts its political warfare and targets countries, part of it is entropic warfare. But to get there,、um, it helps understand. The goal of the Chinese Communist Party、uh, is foreign policy, and a core component of that is, and we see it in the Chinese think tanks, comprehensive national power. So,、uh, to just explain that term, this is a term that the Chinese use to、uh, rank countries. It's an empirical metric. Each country has a comprehensive national power numerical value, and the overt stated goal of China is to be number one in the world in terms of comprehensive national power. It's everything we think of economic and military and all that sort of stuff. But it it goes down to if you have a rare earth mineral mine in your country, but it's a Chinese company that's mining it, they count that towards their comprehensive national power, not yours, because that is feeding into their systems. So they have a completely different way of looking at it. If you have a panda in the zoo, that means that they've got a point off of you for soft power on their ledger. So it's very it's very empirical. It's a little bit insane, like a lot of things that that you see with the Chinese Communist Party, where they think they can break things down into numbers. They can break humanity down into、uh, numbers,、um, but it's a really important driving force. And comprehensive national power. There are Two ways of improving your relative ranking. One is kind of the typical American way, which is you work hard and get better. The other is you knock everybody else down, and then in a relative sense, if you've knocked them down, you're doing better than they are. So this explains, for example, why, from a comprehensive national power perspective, it is beneficial to the Chinese Communist Party to pump fentanyl into Middle America.、Mm. Because it destroys communities, it destroys families. It's a real、um, 
entropic warfare of creating this fragmentation, disintegration, chaos within a target country. Um, so it, in a relative sense, a, a city in middle America that's been hit by fentanyl drops. And in a relative sense, China is doing better off. So that gives an indication to what they're willing to do in order to ad advance comprehensive national power, which is to use unrestricted warfare, which of course is another Chinese term, which is a name of a book from 1999 from two PLA Air Force colonels, where they talked about what they thought were, were valid methods of warfare against enemies like the United States. And they listed 24 different warfares, including drugs warfare, but also including, for example, sanctions. So we know for over 20 years, they've been thinking of not only defending themselves from sanctions, but using sanctions like we've seen against Australia, for example, to try to um, create an environment where their relative comprehensive national power is higher. So we've got two Chinese terms, comprehensive national power and unrestricted warfare. Those are their terms. What they do is they look at a country. If they can do elite capture, they prefer to do that. You know, they just get the country through the elite. If they can't do that, then they use unrestricted warfare to wage entropic warfare to disintegrate and weaken those societies so that um, the resistance to Chinese uh, coercive behavior is lessened. They tend to identify an authoritarian leader and back them. And in the case of entropy or civil war or whatever, an authoritarian has an advantage uh, especially if they're backed with PRC assets, intel and whatnot. And they also tend to uh, get pushed away from the Western sphere. Americans don't want to deal with some proto-authoritarian leader. And so they're left with even less choice. And so they're even closer to China. What I'm describing now, this pattern, is exactly what happened in the Solomon Islands in a three-year period. Hmm. They switched from Taiwan to China in 2019 by now... 2022, end of 2022, um, they, the... I just wanted to jump in and qualify. They switched, meaning that they basically recognized Taiwan previously as being China, and now they switched, to, for the benefit of our readers, to the PRC. Yeah. Um, and, and, the impl and how did that happen? Well, bribery, usually, kind of the usual elite capture. So the, uh, the Solomon Islands, so this is another thing to kind of understand is we've forgotten how important the Pacific Islands are strategically. So the Solomon Islands is the home of the Battle of Guadalcanal, for example, which was, which was eight, almost 80 years, just a little bit over 80 years ago this past summer. This was a highly strategic location that the Japanese needed to control if they were to control, for example, Australian access into the region. So the, and the Americans needed to control it if they're going to push back Japanese ability to interdict Western or anti-bad guys' uh, behavior. So that movement was very closely studied by the Chinese. They learn a lot from history. They've learned from the Soviet Union how not to collapse, right? And they learned from Japanese movements and American counter-movements in the Pacific which islands and locations are strategic, where, where you have to hold, where, where the deep water ports are. And they're trying to emplace in those Japanese and American locations through political warfare what was bought in blood by uh, the Americans during the liberation of the region. 
So these locations, Guadalcanal, um, some of the other countries as well, I can talk about them later if you want, are soaked in the blood that was necessary to liberate them the last time around. This time, China got them just by buying off the right people. At that 80th commemoration of the Battle of Guadalcanal, the America sent, for example, the, the daughter of John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy was his uh, boat sank, was torpedoed during the battle, and his life was saved by two Solomon Islanders. And so his daughter, who's now ambassador to Australia, came up for the commemoration. The prime minister of the Solomon Islands wasn't there. All of these kind of high-level people came in for this commemoration. There were Japanese representatives. All the prime minister just didn't show up because he's so deep in China's pocket that he didn't want to um, give any importance to this liberation from the last uh, Asian authoritarian imperialist power. That's how deep it is. So they switched, that ha that's how fast it happened. They switched in 2019 from Taiwan to China. In the intervening time, there were riots. Uh, then they signed a security agreement between the Solomons and the PRC that allows the deployment of Chinese military personnel to protect Chinese citizens and assets in the Solomon Islands at the request of the Solomon's government or permission of the Solomon's, which will, which will be given because this guy's and the key thing is, uh, they bought off 39 of the 50 members of parliament, which was enough to change the constitution to delay elections. This is what happens. Pro-PRC authoritarian leader is setting the groundwork to delay elections. And if there's a civil war because of it, that's fine with him because his Chinese backers will come in with a military that will keep him in power and he'll never have another election again. That's entropic warfare. Fascinating. Um, so you, we also covered previously on the show, um, you know, what happened to people that, specifically one person that um, kind of stood up against this approach. Yeah. If you could remind us. Yeah. So this is, this is really important. So as uh, China was coming into the Solomons, there was one province in Solomons. Uh, Malaita province that is led by a man called Daniel Sudani and, and he's the premier, elected premier. And he said, yeah, I don't like this. He, he saw what was coming and they issued the Aoki communique. Aoki is the capital of Malaita province. And the Aoki communique, which was signed by his government and the traditional chiefs of the region says, we don't want any CCP linked companies operating in Malaita. And that's what the Chinese come in with, right? Oh, we're going to come in economic development. We're going to come in with company. We're going to come in with money, all that sort of stuff. And he said, we don't want it. And there were some reasons for it. But the main reason for it was, and it's in the communique, we believe in freedom of religion. Hmm. We are Christians in this case, but there was a freedom of religion issue. And we don't want to deal with a systemically atheist country. They knew the relationship between the Chinese Communist Party. They could see what communism is in the context of religion much more clearly than many of the people here who get caught up in all sorts of different other things. Um, and as people of faith, they wanted to have nothing to do with these guys. And then Premier Sudani got sick. 
and he needed an MRI. And um, the central government, led by this pro-PRC prime minister, refused to give him the funding to get the MRI out of outside the country, which would have been standard operating procedure for the premier of a province, unless he took the investment from the Chinese, which is an exportation of the Chinese social credit system, right? Accept the Chinese into your heart or you die, right? Accept the Communist Party in your, in your province or you get no treatment. And he said no. So if you want to see people who are willing to die rather than take Chinese Communist Party money, go look in the Pacific. They're there. They're actually all over. And there tend to be people who believe in something bigger than themselves. People of faith, people who believe in their community, people who care about their family, that sort of thing, which gives you an indication of how to fight back. But it's also the exact definitions of the sort of people that Chinese Communist Party tries to destroy inside of China, right? They know that this is a threat to them. They know faith, family, community, freedom, are, are kryptonite to the Chinese Communist Party. So Daniel Sudan said, no, not gonna take the money. And other people who believe in the same things he, he does, uh, which is you know, faith, family, freedom, all that sort of stuff, heard about it. And one of, one of them in India said, uh, yeah, we can't let you die. And he happened to know President Tsai in Taiwan, called President Tsai, and President Tsai said, come to Taiwan. We'll bring you to Taiwan for the medical treatment you need. And he got it, and he got the treatment that he needed, and he eventually came back. Now, what's missing from this story? What were the Australians doing, right? Because the Australians are, are the Five Eyes partner that's supposed to be leading the Western engagement, especially in that part of the Pacific. They didn't offer him any help, and he had to transit through Australia to and from Taiwan, and none of them ever went to go talk to him. No debriefing, no courtesy visits, nothing. Which is a bit of a different issue, but it's uh, telling that countries that we may not be identifying as frontline fighters in the fight against the Chinese Communist Party, like India, will act in ways, and there's an individual in India, but it, it's consistent. And in fact, Prime Minister Modi is going to be going to Papua New Guinea, um, which is a neighboring Pacific Island country at the beginning, in the beginning of the year, first visit by an Indian Prime Minister to Papua New Guinea because they're worried. They're worried that China's coming in and the, and the Western Five Eyes construct is failing. Let, let's talk for a moment about Papua New Guinea because it's generally you know, not a country you think about very often. I think of cargo cults, things that I've read in the past, but this is actually a pretty sizable country in its own right and pretty significant in the region. It has a larger population and a larger landmass than New Zealand. And it has gold and copper and all sorts of stuff. If we weren't looking at it through a colonial lens, that we, we would be paying a lot more attention to Papua New Guinea than perhaps we would to New Zealand. I mean, the relationship with New Zealand is historical and there's installations and it's part of infrastructure and things like that. But from a just, if you're India and you're not part of that Western construct to begin with, 
Papua New Guinea potentially offers you a, a lot more uh, in terms of potential for engagement. Very strategically located also. Very complex country. It has uh, scores of languages, if not more. It needs help in everything in uh, education sector and healthcare sector and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the thing, the reason you're going to hear about Papua New Guinea is there's one section of it called Bougainville, which had a civil war. There was a civil war between Papua New Guinea and uh, sort of basically Bougainville over a big mine that was in Bougainville. Um, and it was a very bloody, horrible civil war. And pa Papua New Guinea was a colony, outright colony of Australia until 1975, very recent. And part of that uh, decolonization, the Australians wanted to keep control of some of the mining assets, including this mine, and there is, it contributed to the Civil War. The Civil War ended with a peace treaty 20 years ago, which hasn't been fully enacted, but in the peace treaty there is um, a provision for independence referendum. They had the independence referendum, 97% voted for independence, but now it has to go through the parliamentary process. This is another clue as to how China will look for fragmentation. And uh, if Bougainville doesn't get independence, it's very likely the civil war will reignite. If it does, and the West isn't part of both sides of the discussion, the Chinese will come into whichever side the West isn't mm. on and will be very happy to have a civil war where it's backing a side that becomes more alienated from the West. If we accept that Bougainville is going to go independent because that's what its people want and that's what was in the part of the um, process for the peace treaty, then instead of having just one country that's friendly to the West, we can have two countries that's friendly to the West. Like, we can see that as an opportunity, but we need to build from the ground up. Again, this is what the Chinese Communist Party doesn't like. It doesn't like stable, peaceful communities. So instead of doing what the Australians did in the case of Solomons, where the Chinese gave Sogavari this corrupt pro-PRC prime minister weapons, and so the Australians said, we'll give you more weapons, they can say, You're, they're gonna, Chinese are going to give you weapons, we're going to work with you on a peace treaty. We're going to help bring real security and stability to the population, not weapons. We're going to fight your warfare with peace fare. What I'm thinking to myself right now, and you know, maybe there's some other viewers that are thinking this as well, is that um, this entropic warfare, as you're describing it, it seems like the U.S. may have engaged in similar type practices in some parts of the world. Um, that didn't work out very well for it. This isn't an issue of whataboutism. Uh, it's, it's more just like, you know, how is what the PRC is doing different from some of maybe what the U.S. was trying to do at one point? So I, I would uh, equate it a little bit more to what the British were trying to do in the 19th century. So divide and conquer to set up a colonial government. That, I think, is more of the model because that, that's very much kind of the end game. Beijing wants to set up, and you can see it on a place like Solomon's, sort of self-governing, right? Like a British colony, but the resources are being extracted. The foreign policy is controlled 
essentially out of Beijing. Um, the the locals are suppressing the other locals. That sort of, that sort of thing. Very much of a just colonial model, and it's an open deference to China. Hmm. So I think the, there were a lot of covert American covert activities, but they weren't necessarily publicized, and you didn't necessarily want um, you know the American ambassador going through the center of town on a carpet of rose petals or something like that, you know. But the Chinese do. They want to be acknowledged as being the center of all under heaven, that, you know, this, that sort of um, thing. So U.S. did a lot of not great stuff. But if you're trying to look to history to understand what this model is mm-hmm. so that you can figure out how to fight it, I think the colonial model may be more... Um, uh, the classic European colonial model, especially the British model, which from a Chinese perspective was successful for a very long time, is more relevant. Oh, very interesting. So there's this whole idea of you know wanting to establish, frankly, the rest of the world as vassal states, right, to to the CCP ultimately. Is that is that how you see it? Yeah. I, well, yeah. So there's the kind of imperial vassal state, you know, you, you pay your tribute and things like that. But I, I, I really do think, as I see it getting set up in a place like Solomon's, the, the advantage of looking at the Pacific Islands is they're very small. So Solomon's is, I don't know, 350, 400,000 people, something like that. You, so you can see the mechanisms a lot more clearly. The layers are a lot more, they're thin. Um, so you can see who, who China's targeting, what they're going after, that sort of thing. So you can see, for example, they go after democracy and the judiciary and the media. Hmm. So they, they want to make sure that by the time, there's more to the Daniel Sudani story. They tried to uh, do a vote of no confidence. In fact, they're trying to do another one, that sort of thing. And um, I was doing an interview with somebody from that team and they were saying, well, we'll go to the courts. My experience on this is by the time you're saying we'll go to the courts, the Chinese have the courts. They will have, before the big action is taken, they will have tried to block off all of the escape routes. So the judiciary will have been compromised. The media will have been bought off. Social media, definitely. Before the move is, big move is made. Mm-hmm. So, and just to give you an idea of how far down the road Solomon's is. Solomon's is, uh, that's the headquarters of the, one of the major fisheries, regional fisheries organizations is there. And uh, the U.S. was doing a patrol with a Coast Guard cutter in the region. I think it was a Coast Guard cutter. Um, Anti-illegal fishing patrol, which all the countries in the region say they want. And it was supposed to come into Solomon's to refuel. And it was refused entry. Currently, no foreign military ships are allowed entry into the Solomon's. They're letting the Australians and the New Zealanders in, which tells you something. But American ships can't go in. Uh, British ships can't go in, you know, Indian ships can't go in. I'm sure the Chinese can go in if they want. But they have closed their ports to the country that died on their beaches to liberate them the last time. And this isn't what the people of the Solomons want. Mm. This is effective elite capture. So it's very interesting to me. Um, I've been thinking a lot about what we've been learning about in the Twitter files. Okay, I'm going to make a bit of a leap here. Um, 
you mentioned how important the capture of the media and social media and so forth is, and the, the power of these institutions is they have a real power to shape public opinion. And you say that in Salman's, the people's opinion isn't there, but my guess would be if these institutions are, are captured somehow or very kind of you know, aligned in, in the CCP direction, that that, that, that is changing. Because, you know, so it, with these Twitter files released, we see how public opinion has been shaped. And I think we'll be seeing a lot more of that, for example, you know, around President Trump or and now we're probably going to learn more about what happened with respect to COVID policy. And we've seen all sorts of dumps of emails showing the sort of, you know, interaction between different institutions to shape opinion. My point is it's very powerful, right? So my question is, how does what we see happening there relate to what we see happening there? Is there any comparison, really, in your mind? Yeah, there's a lot. So the goal would be to take over easily. So we talked about unrestricted warfare and the 24 warfares, and you know there are all these different warfares. There are three warfares that are considered the, the ones we hear about the most. Right, which is psychological warfare, media warfare, and lawfare. So they would prefer to create a CCP-friendly domestic environment um, through positive media portrayal, that sort of thing. But they're also happy to create division in the society so that you get this entropic effect and the citizens are fighting each other rather than looking at what's happening from the outside, coming in at them from the outside. So if you're fighting over whether to defund the police or not because you know there are people who are hooked on fentanyl who are creating havoc within your society, and your focus is that, you know, do we defund the police? Do we have uh, money on tap? Do we, how do we do that domestically? You're not saying who's pumping in the fentanyl, right? And what you're doing is you're, you're teaching people to hate each other. So in the U.S., especially about two years ago, you're starting to hear a lot of language comparing this period to the Civil War, right? When Americans are fighting Americans. And I would argue that a better comparison it would be the War of Independence, where you're trying to free the country from outside influence and control in this case from China. So if you're focused on a civil war and not a war of independence, it's obviously beneficial for the outside power because it's easier for them to walk right in and find the factions that are more likely to support it. How do you do that? You do, do it through social media and that sort of stuff. And COVID was great. We were all stuck inside looking at our computers. It helped them gather metadata and put together profiles to um, feed into the AI systems, to do mass customized manipulation, to um, get into our heads. We were sitting there in front of a machine that had the capability to get right into our brains and create an environment that is conducive to uh, per, the sort of things that China wants to get out of the United States. But this is global. So in the case of the Pacific Islands, the main entry point is Facebook. 
it's not the nightly news, it's, it's not the New York Times, it's Facebook. So if you have enough fake profiles, and they also focus a lot on languages, so the people at the local embassy in China will speak the local language. If they're in Tongan, they'll speak Tongan. If they're in Samoa, they'll speak Samoan. That means they can get onto Facebook and they can start to uh, affect the debate at a very easy level. There was a case recently in the Marshall Islands, which was a very important case. We can get to it. But they were almost brought down the government, and the amount of bribes was $7,000, $22,000. The, the amount of money involved, if you can find the right person through this profiling and affect the society to get it ready for this sort of thing, is very, very small. Fascinating. So, I mean, very briefly, what happened in the Marshall Islands? So the Marshall Islands, there are, if somebody asks you, which countries are the best friends of the United States? So what would you say? Best, uh, Canada. <laughs> I mean, I'd like, I'd like to, I'd like to think that. So would right? I. Um, yeah, we're both Canadian. Yeah, it? yeah. But, but. <laughs> so, but, but, yeah. what were you, what were you going to say? So, there are three countries: Palau, the Marshall Islands, and the Federated States of Micronesia, that have, through a voluntary compact of free association, that's the name for the documents. Um, given over their defense and security to the United States of America. So they literally trust their lives to the United States of America. And Pacific Islands, you think they're small, but when you look at their, the zone they cover in the Pacific, it's as large as the continental United States. And it starts from just behind the Philippines. So if you have that zone, and you have Guam and the Marianas, which are part of the United States, the security perimeter of the United States goes from Hawaii all the way to just behind the Philippines. Right? That's, that's how important those countries are. They push the front line of the US from Hawaii all the way to essentially the other side of the South China Sea. Very, very strategically important. Those countries are independent countries, but they have these compacts of free association with the US. Every 20 years, there's a financial component to it. The people of those countries can work in the U.S. In fact, many of them serve in the U.S. military at a higher rate than the general U.S. population. There are a lot in places like Arkansas, for example, or ULIS. They're kind of all different places all over the U.S. We are in a period right now when the financial component is being renegotiated. It happens every 20 years. In the meantime, two out of the three recognize Taiwan including the Marshall Islands, which is the location of the U.S. Kwajalein Missile Base. A Chinese couple who got a hold of Marshallese citizenship around 2017, 2018, decided to try to set up essentially a country within a country. So remember, this is a country that recognizes Taiwan. They wanted to set up on an atoll called Rongelap a equivalent of special administrative district, which would have its own uh, visa requirements, customs requirements. It would essentially be a little China-run node within the Marshall Islands. To do that, they needed legislation passed. And to do that, they paid off a whole range of different people. And they came within one vote in the parliament and the marshals of getting their way with one vote. 
That was in 2018. And it was only because the president stood against it that it didn't happen. That president, she lost the next election and the effort restarted. Hmm. The FBI got involved because the NGO through which they were running the bribery money is based in New York and affiliated to the United Nations. And the Marshalls wasn't the only country they were involved with. They were involved with, uh, you know, Kiribati and Vanuatu and the high-ranking people from Bangladesh were at the launch party. And this is looks from the outside like a Chinese intelligence operation. Because they had that headquarters in New York, uh, the FBI could get them extradited. They were in the Philippines and brought to New York to stand trial. Just within the last couple of weeks, they pled guilty, which means we're never going to actually find out what happened. But they came very close to creating a country within a country in the middle of one of the most strategically important zones that the United States has in its Indo-Pacific defense architecture. And they had a free run for a few years, which shows how unmonitored hmm. the, the area is and how active the Chinese political warfare is. I see. So there was a plea deal, basically, and there basically won't be discovery of what actually happened. Is that that's what you're saying? Yes. And we won't not only will we not get to hear more about what happened, apart apart from what was in the indictment in Marshalls, we're not going to hear about their relationship to all these other countries and what other operations they had going in all these other countries. Now, it could be that their part of the plea deal was they're giving intelligence to uh, all sorts of relevant organizations in the United States. Um, I would hope so, uh, but that's not guaranteed. And I personally believe in transparency. And I think it would be helpful for the people of the marshals to see that the United States believes in transparency, accountability, and rule of law, and that they learn who in their country is playing these sorts of games. Do you think that the American establishment fully grasps the significance of this perimeter that you're describing? <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> how can I answer in a polite fashion? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think I, yeah, I, there's, when they were set up, when the compacts were set up originally in the 80s, there were people in Congress who had fought in the Pacific theater. So they, they knew people, they might have been wounded there, they knew people who had died there, they understood the cost of creating these relationships in the first place. The cost in, in blood and treasure and all that stuff. They knew, what they, they knew what these countries were. And they also knew that they're the neighbors of the US. Guam is right next to these countries. They're, they're neighbors. Now, you know, they're high-ranking people in the US administration who cover this professionally who have said when they were originally given the assignment, couldn't find them on a map. Like these are people who are in expert positions on the topic. Yeah, it's not, it's not through lack of intelligence or devotion to the US or anything like that. It's just we don't talk about them anymore. I want to talk about another nation which is in the region, which is, of course, Taiwan, 
Um, but before I go there, um, I guess, you know, presumably you're doing something to help people understand the significance. Um, well, talking to you, um, but apart from that, there, so there is a lot, there's a growing interest. So um, it testified before Congress and talking to various other people. We're also trying to understand more about how the three freely associated states, Palau, Marshall Islands, Faroe States, and Micronesia, can be in a better position to defend themselves. So the U.S. might, its interest might wax and wane. I would hope it would become strong and stay strong, but things change. Um, so all they want to do, and for the most part, is be able to defend themselves, to be, to be safe. And their strategic location means they're, they're on a maritime highway if somebody's trying to get from Asia to America or vice versa. So they're never going to be unimportant. Um, but they don't, because the U.S. took responsibility for defense and security, their defense and security abilities have, have sort of been frozen in aspect. They're just like they... Well, as many countries, frankly, even a number of European countries, of course, maybe at a different scale, dramatically different scale, are still in that kind of boat, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So... What's starting to happen is they're starting to look at setting up their own national security councils. So Palau has a national security coordinator, and she's very good. She's a former prosecutor, and she's trying to create an office and get out information about what China is doing in the region. So they put out Palau. This is a country with a population of 20,000 people, put out a national security strategy, and she put out a research document on the illegal activities of one of the Chinese spy ships, the Wanwang-5, in Palau waters, showing it going up and down the cables and creating all sorts of problems for them. The other two countries are also in the process of thinking about putting in their own national security councils. Um, and when Wang Yi, uh, the Chinese foreign minister, went through the region in the spring with his two documents, uh, which were kind of a common vision for China and the Pacific Islands, and then a five-year plan to achieve it, the president of the Faroe States of Micronesia, Penuelo, David Pen President Penuelo, put out a letter saying, this is one of the most game-changing things we've ever seen in our lifetimes, and specifically tying those Chinese ambitions in the Pacific Islands to Taiwan and saying they want to take Taiwan peacefully if possible by force if necessary, and that's why they're looking at the Pacific Islands. So you, you mean game-changing not in a positive aspect here, Yeah, right? game-changing yeah. in a way like you're playing a baseball game and a typhoon comes through, right? <laughs> like a, that kind of game-changing, right? Uh, so completely uh, bouleversant, <laughs> completely overturning what's, what's there already. And he, he, this is the one of the three countries that does recognize China. And he's, he was writing a letter to other Pacific Island leaders saying, this is really dangerous. We see the Chinese ships going up and down our cables. We see all this other stuff going on. And we know this is about Taiwan. So they're ready to talk about their security environment. That's why they're looking at putting together these national security councils. So that's a topic that 
um, I'm trying to learn more about and, uh, and figure out if there's a, a way to be helpful um, in setting up some sort of something. They're leading it, but they don't even know, in fact, nobody, not many people know, how the U.S. NSC, National Security Council, works. And so how the systems can, can work together effectively. And the, the freely associated states, those compacts are actually managed through the Department of Interior, not even state. So the state is negotiating, but the money is supposed to run through Interior, but it's a defense thing, right, because of their location. But the post office is involved because they have uh, U.S. postal codes, um, so there's all these different departments and agencies that are FEMA is everything involved, and it's uncoordinated on the U.S. side, um, and the FAS have somewhat limited capacity. So trying to figure out if there are institutional adjustments or creations that could streamline both sides so that they can fit together more like Lego and not more like, you know, like a, a hammer and a screw. Like, like the, the two pieces really don't fit at the moment particularly well. Well, it just strikes me that, that this is of much greater importance to the U.S. than many people realize. There's one lesson for everything we've heard today. I hope there's uh, some of the right people are listening. Let's jump to Taiwan, because this is, of course, okay. the, you know, the critical question. There was just elections in Taiwan, which... I think surprised a lot of people, um, and I'd love to know what the implications of that from your analysis, um, and also why exactly it's so obvious from that five-year plan, that vision uh, that the Chinese foreign minister had that, that Taiwan is the target. If you look at what they ask for in the plan, it's things like, we'll help you set up fingerprinting labs and we'll help you run your customs and we'll help you do forensics and we'll help you do, like it's getting into the nitty gritty of a security state. You know, we'll help you train your police and we'll help you do like all of, all of those mechanisms, which is why it's so interesting to take a look at the Pacific Islands because you can be sure that this is the same sort of thing they're trying to do in Africa or South America or whatever, but because it's so small and because they're leaking all the Pacific Islanders are leaking all the time, you can actually see what it is. Um, so if you want to take Taiwan, and we know the Chinese want to take Taiwan, um, right now you look at this, this kind of power projection from the coast of China or maybe from the South China Sea Islands and then you build out from there. If you take Taiwan and you plan on holding Taiwan, Taiwan is the center and then the circle goes out from there. If the circle goes out from there, those are those Pacific Islands. So you can't be secure in holding Taiwan unless you also hold those islands. Guam would be in that periphery, but if you don't hit Guam, and so you don't provoke a response from the U.S., but you've got your pieces in place in all of the other ones. For, so, for example, in Palau, something that the National Security Coordinator has brought out is that U.S. is looking at putting in an, a, a radar station, a over-horizon radar station. Chinese interests have bought real estate in very strategic locations that give it line of sight into where the U.S. installation would be. So 
you want to use that installation, but who knows? The power gets cut off, uh, a missile comes in you, you, from a house right next door. You don't, you don't know what it is, but you know that China knows what it is. They've done a survey of every piece of valuable real estate in each of those freely associated states and figured out where the U.S. facilities they would need to disable are and have, if they can, bought or leased or set up a, something, a shop, an apartment, something within a line of sight. So if you're going to take Taiwan and hold Taiwan, you need to have functional control in at least the, that band of Pacific Islands. And if you go down the map and you've got Solomons and PNG and maybe Vanuatu, you can then cut off the Australians mm. and the New Zealanders who are functionally irrelevant anyway. And it makes it a lot more difficult for Japan to come down also from the, from the north. So this is the World War II map, mm. right? This is, it's exactly the same thing. And the island chain defense, which is part of what Taiwan is, that island chain off the coast of China, that's a world, that's a Cold War thing, right? So it's, the geography hasn't changed, except China has built itself new islands in the South China Sea that allow it to project power even further out. Not a lot of people are aware that taking Taiwan is kind of central to the education of anyone in the Chinese military, for example, like that, that is a foregone conclusion that that has to happen, as I understand it. Mm -hmm. Where are things at with this? So, as she said at the 20th Party Conference, you know, they prefer peaceful reunification, but no means are off the table. All, all means are available. Um, I think they, every, you know, there are a million guesses, but if you look at how they're building their Navy and their rocket force, they're building it to be able to do it. And their the amphibious capabilities of the Marines and all that sort of stuff. And they're with civil military fusion, um, you know, their roll-on, roll-off ferries, the use of civilian aircraft, all that sort of stuff. They have enormous capabilities an enormous lift already, and they are clearly, I think it would be hard to argue, not designing a military capable of that specific task, right? That's, this is what they're building for. Would they prefer to wait until 2024 and get a different administration in that just uh, capitulates or, you know, has a two countries, one system type agenda? Yeah, they would. But they are, and, and she in particular, has staked his reputation on delivering Taiwan. But it doesn't stop with Taiwan. If you take Taiwan, that's, that's the necessary preliminary step for doing what we know they want to do, which is push the Americans out of the Indo-Pacific, particularly the Pacific, and, and push American functional operational capabilities back to Hawaii. And this was that in 2008, I think one of the, there was testimony, and one of the admirals said that a Chinese officer had come up to him and said, why don't we take Hawaii West and you take Hawaii East and 
don't worry about it. We'll report back to you if there are any problems, that sort of thing. And he took it as a joke. I don't think it was a joke. I, th I think that's really the, the goal. And if they take Taiwan, then what will all the American allies in the region think? Will the Philippines think that the U.S. is going to back the Philippines? What will the Japanese do? What will the Malaysians do? What will the Indonesians do? You know, you get a whole band of failure of, of, you know, of U.S. ability to protect allies and partners in the region. And so countries scramble to cut a deal with China, hoping that they'll be you know, eaten last, so to speak. And then that pushes out one way and then it pushes out the other way towards the Pacific, which is why the Indians are so nervous, which is why Prime Minister Modi is going to Papua New Guinea again. India's helping to rebuild Angkor Wat in Cambodia. They're doing defense deals with Vietnam. You know, they're trying to give the countries in the region the ability to fight China so that China doesn't come at them by the land border or up into the Indian Ocean. Because right now, that if Taiwan goes, that whole region um, doesn't look good. Some people watching might be thinking to themselves, you know, the U.S. is just way overextended. You know, there's a big war, you know, su support for this Ukrainian side in Ukraine. Uh, you know, I'm concerned. I think I think the U.S. needs to focus on its own problems, which are considerable, right? Why is Taiwan? at this stage so important and, and that whole region? This is, uh, I would argue, and I would take the Chinese at their word on this, a battle of systems. So you have a choice. You have a choice of a system in which, like you're seeing happen in the Solomons, you accept the Chinese Communist Party into your heart or you die, or you have a system where you have the ability to live a free life uh, in the faith of your choosing with the people you care about and the state isn't trying to make sure that you are just a supportive component of its ambitions. We're back to the old um, battle of systems that you always tend to see with this kind of authoritarian regime, in this case, the Chinese Communist Party. They are fundamentally expansionist. They don't know how to not expand. They're, um, they're not going to stop because it, it's like Russia and the Ukraine. You know, they, some people will argue, well, if you just give Russia that portion of Ukraine, then it'll feel secure. Well, there's another portion next to that portion of Ukraine, and that will make the Russians feel insecure also. And so then they'll want a little bit more and then they'll want a little bit more and then they'll want a little bit more. Um, and you can ask people in Lithuania or Poland what they feel about that. Just give them a little piece and, and the alligator will be satisfied. It's the same with the way the Chinese Communist Party looks at it. It, it will just expand and expand and expand and expand. And if it takes Taiwan, the U.S. will have demonstrably failed at defending a successful, democratic, open society that is a key component of the strategic architecture of the Indo-Pacific. It is a very, very big win. So Taiwan is um, 
in incredibly important strategically, philosophically, economically, and any way you can imagine. Um, and that's why China wants it and wants to destroy it and turn well, it into Hong Kong. And, you know, not to mention chip manufacturing. And, yeah. 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 The chip manufacturing is important. But when you get back to comprehensive national power, it's like COVID, okay? China, it, wherever it came from, China knew it had a problem. There was this virus that was in Wuhan. And what did they do? They blocked internal flights and they allowed external flights, right? So it was allowed to spread. They turned what was an epidemic domestically into a global pandemic. Because if your mentality is comprehensive national power, you know you're gonna take a hit. You know you've got a problem. But if everybody else takes a hit also, and you use that arbitrage moment to gather PPE, to position yourself, to, you know, you can come out relatively ahead, which they did, right? So same thing with the chips. If the chip manufacturing is destroyed, yeah, it hurts China, but it hurts everybody else also. So if they can be in a position where they, they're hurt relatively less, they come out ahead. There's been some compelling arguments made that the vision of the world that you described the Chinese regime has, that in the West there are quite powerful entities and people that actually endeavor for a similar vision, and that, you know, the way that we, our societies responded to COVID reflects that. Some of these folks might say, well, okay, that it's, it's, it's all fine and good that the CCP wants this, but we have, we have our own struggle that we need to have here as well. How do we deal with this? So we're Canadian, eh? So let's talk about the truckers. And did you watch, did you watch any of the commission? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, and absolutely. I've, I've been following the issue um, pretty closely. So for those who are not graced by God to be Canadians, if we had a, uh, this trucker thing and the Canadian government invoked the Emergencies Act, which had only, it's sort of, this form of legislation had only ever been invoked during serious terrorist incidents in the uh, early 1970s. By, by Trudeau's by, father. By the yeah. father of Trudeau and um, the current prime minister and during the war. And it was uh, invoked during what was until then not found to be an illegal protest. Um, part of the act is that subsequently you have to have a commission of inquiry into whether this was legitimate use of the act or not. And so there's, there have been these uh, weeks of uh, testimony that's been presented. And everybody has to testify, including the prime minister. And the testimony has, uh, uh, for me as a Canadian, uh, has been actually terrifying. Um, so uh, one of the people who testified was our deputy prime minister. And uh, she was talking about the freezing of bank accounts. And what was happening was the 
bank accounts of families of truckers were, were being frozen so that the families would call the trucker and say, I can't get out money to feed the family. I can't get money out of the bank account. We can't pay, you know, I can't buy food for our kids as a way of applying pressure for the truckers to come home. And that was justified as, well, it worked, right? That is, to me, Chinese social credit system style control. And there were reports, there's more documents that have been coming out, that there was also a thought to make people report to the police station before their bank accounts were unfrozen. Okay. Remember, these protests were not illegal. We'll see what the outcome of the inquiry of the commission is, but th thinking of the mechanisms of state and using them in that way is uh, really terrifying, actually, to me. Um, now, I don't know where it's going to go. This is something that's in progress, um, but this is not dissimilar in concept, although in scale, to what somebody like Daniel Sudani went through in Malaita province, where wrong think is punishable in ways that are not what I thought my country would do to its citizens. I think what you're talking about is a very good point. You know, um, one of the upcoming interviews uh, that I ha we have on American Thought Leaders is with Aaron Cariotti about his book, The New Abnormal, um, which talks about how you know, under emergency power as a state exercised all sorts of power that, you know, is very difficult to roll back, even if you ever lift that state of emergency, which in many cases, that decision hasn't been made, you know, and ostensibly some of the most democratic countries. So your point is very interesting, which is that this is not a finished story. And this is kind of an opportunity for, for people in a free society to act as free citizens of... Uh, um, yeah, and I don't think anybody saw Elon Musk coming. <laughs> you know, there are things that happen in these systems, you know, like the Twitter files, right? Um, that will change behavior. We know that other tech companies are quickly deleting his files as quickly as they can. But uh, it, as long as our system is better than the Chinese system, it just is. And it has self-correcting mechanisms and things can get bad. And if, if there is some core of that system left, it can self-correct. I heard what happened with that testimony and I didn't accept it. Right. The, the danger would be if I thought, oh, yeah, that's normal and that's fine. And, you know, why, why shouldn't they report to police stations? Then they've gotten into my head. Then this whole psychological warfare through social media, sort of that sort of stuff has has got me. And then then we're really in trouble. Right. But as long as people feel like maybe this isn't normal, maybe and, and discuss it and get back to some of the basics of what gave us the ability to have these sorts of societies in the first place. If you're, if you're in the United States of America, you know, it's, it's that. It's, you know, being willing to 
cross a frozen river in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve and go and kill your enemies, right? Because they are trying to force you into submission. Then as long as those discussions are being had and those thoughts are being thought, then there's hope. You don't have to be stuck in this moment. It can be part of this pendulum that occasionally goes back and forth. And that's why, again, the Elon Musk Twitter story isn't finished either. So I'm not despairing. I don't think we've lost the entropic warfare attack on our cultures and our countries. But the, the attack is there. We are under attack. And that definitely needs to be acknowledged and internalized and understood and then countered. And the thing that I want to kind of get to the bottom of is how these different types of attacks intersect with each other mm -hmm. and how the Chinese Communist Party is using it, to, again, to use this w wonderful term that you coined, entropic warfare, to further create more entropy here and make things chaotic enough that it just might be able to achieve its ends. That's what I want to get to the bottom of. So what the Chinese Communist Party is very good at doing is identifying real problems, legitimate grievances, and then leading you to the wrong solution. So to use kind of a, a silly example, you know, if the problem is that your ice cream is too cold, then the solution is burn down the creamery or something. You know, that's sort of very simple. But if your problem is racism in society, then your problem, that's which completely legitimate problem, but then your solution is to cut the society up into racial groups and pit them against each other for what are presented as scarce resources. That's a solution that serves external goals and, and benefits China, not necessarily the United States of America or Canada or anybody else. So the way to counter that, to get back to the Pacific Islands, in a, in a case like Bougainville and Papua New Guinea, is acknowledged there is a real problem here. Bougainville was promised or worked, fought for independence, signed a peace treaty, all that sort of stuff. And if the solution being presented is to reignite a civil war in order to get it, that's not great. Get back to that real problem and figure out what the real solution would be, which I think I would argue would be to get back to that original, very hard to sign a peace treaty. If you're in a war, People have died. You've done terrible things. The hurt is there. But you've decided to put that aside for a hope for the future, right? That takes an enormous personal sacrifice. Very difficult. But they did it. And they did it in the Solomons also, also 20 years ago. Those sacrifices should be honored and should be built upon. Then you, you've got a real problem, but you've got a real solution that has buy-in domestically. And China hates that. I mean, first, forget what China thinks because it's really about the people, but in that sort of a situation, China can't find purchase, right? The, the cracks aren't there. They'll find, it's like a sheet of ice which has little cracks in it, and China will jump on it and jump on it until the cracks break open and the ice flows all disaggregate. If you can keep it together, and bind it together and put another layer of water on top and whatever, reinforce the, the situation. China hates it. And the people are better off for it. So similarly, 
they're going to look for cracks and disagreements and real problems. And we should solve them before they have a chance to exploit them. Well, Cleo Pascal, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's always great to see you. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Cleo Pascal and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. Mm-hmm.